Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day to you dads. May you receive the nap or the dinner or the tie or the uh, gift you will receive today with great joy and celebration of your families. It's a tremendous blessing and responsibility to be a dad. And um, so um, we're going to look this morning, of course, at the title of this message, which is, um, let me turn my page here, Jesus and the Folly of Worldly Fame. Now, I'm going to start with kind of a short story that may not have anything to do with the sermon, but um, it's fascinating what a brush with fame does to people, isn't it? Um, I w- we came down here 20-plus years ago uh, from Kansas City. Uh, we were about a year done with a seminary, and we're working at a church there in, in the North Kansas City area. And of course, if you're in a big city, you have more opportunities for student event type of things. And so I took a group of students to uh, Worlds of Fun, which was the kind of the local theme park there, roller coasters, you know, kind of a Six Flags uh, kind of thing. And we happened to be there on the same day that, uh, I don't know if you've heard, uh, these guys are like ancient like me now, the Backstreet Boys happened to be in town uh, doing a concert. And uh, so they were there at the park when we were there. They had some handlers that allowed them to cut all of the lines and do everything that they could do. And, you know, they were, you know, kind of absolute jerks because they'd point at you and laugh when they got in front of the line and everything like that. But uh, it was the Backstreet Boys, and then there, they had this opener act, uh, kind of the, you know, the fresh kid on the block. He's got this one-hit wonder kind of thing. And, uh, and he was walking around in kind of this leathery jacket, and he had hair like this, you know. And, uh, um, and so we had a girl in the youth group that talked about 1,000 miles an hour and, and barely breathed and would just constantly talk, 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 talk and she shall remain nameless. And so she's sitting there uh, having a conversation with us. She goes, I don't understand it. I don't understand why people get so worked up. It's the Backstreet Boys. It's no big deal. Well, at the same time, she's kind of, you know, talking about how fame is highly overrated and shouldn't impact people and everything like that. Uh, This uh, hot new number dude or whatever that had one hit wonder walks by and accidentally kind of grazes his elbow on, on her elbow and walks by. And she's talking at about a thousand miles an hour, and she goes, she stops in mid-sentence and says, wait, was that? And then she names the guy's name, and then she goes, ah! Big talker, you know, kind of thing. But, you know, it is a huge temptation in a lot of ways that, you know, when someone happens to maybe have a hit song, or um, in the case of the celebrity pastor, uh, speaking circuit, they have a hit sermon, if there's such a thing, or, uh, you know, a, a new book or something like that, there's a huge temptation to really, you know, just, you know, we need to get this show on the road, we need to promote, we need to, you know, because uh, fame makes people crazy, which for the promoters means money, you know, which for the performers means exhaustion, but, uh, you know, there's just something about worldly fame that is very attractive, whether it's something as innocent as we just need to get this message out there, 
you know, or, or something maybe just a little bit larger, like a, just a kind of just secular performer doing this and that and everything like that. So I say all that just to say that when we talk this morning about, um, you know, Jesus and the folly of worldly fame, it is that. Jesus would have nothing to do with worldly fame. And it's a good lesson for us when we, uh, I, don't, I don't think anyone in the room necessarily is going to be brushed with fame or, or become famous or, or something like that. That might happen to some of you, and, and that would be, you know, all in God's timing and a wonderful thing, and be very careful with that. But let's not fall under the temptation of, man, this, this person's effective or this person's this simply because they've reached some sort of rock star status. And so... Um, because uh, Jesus did reach rock star status, but he would have nothing to do with that. See, had something to kind of do with it, but anyway, I just wanted to share that story. Okay. All right, so we're going to start by looking at some background. I think it's important here. So the first thing I want to look at is in verse 1, it says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. Okay, and so after this were all of the events that were happening in chapter 6. The reason this is kind of important is because in chapter 6, verse 4, it says, now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand, which was kind of in April of the year. But then in chapter 7, it says that the Feast of Booths is about to happen, which would be in October. So just to get an idea of how much time Jesus was spending kind of strolling around Galilee, it was about six months. Okay, and so... There's no mention of, and and the reason that's important is there's really no mention of Jesus' brothers prior to this, maybe occasionally, I think they're at the wedding of Cana and other things like that, but there's no mention of Jesus' brothers, but they say, hey, you've done all of these signs, we need to get you to show, show yourself to the world and that sort of thing like that. Well, where did they see those signs? They either heard about them or maybe during this six months period, Jesus was continuing to do signs there in Galilee that just aren't on record. Okay, and so Jesus was kind of moving about Galilee for six months, and and I think I pointed out a few weeks back, sometimes we read this thing in sequential order, and we think, okay, boom, it happened, boom, it happened, boom, it happened. No, there's large gaps of time sometimes between these things taking place. But not only that, it says, of course, that the Feast of Booths is about to happen. Okay, verse 1 and 2 says, after this, Jesus went about Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And now the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. Now we're going to use information given to me by Kent Hughes. And uh, so, uh, but he, he paints a beautiful picture of what the Feast of Booths is. Okay, and I'm just going to give a little information. I'm not going to give that end information in case you want to use it or don't use it, Robbie. But uh, um, he gives a great, he tackles verses 1 through 37 in one sermon. And he does it because of, what is happening in verse 37. And verse 37, when we get, come to that, Robbie's going to be back up here for his uh, final double, and uh, I'm going to give him the freedom to use that or not use that, and so not spoil it for you in today's message. Okay, and so the Feast of Booths or Tabernacle was a harvest feast. Now, this proves that if Jews were part of a denomination, it would be Baptist, because all of their, fee, all of their festivities are around food. But uh, So it took place when all of the harvest had been gathered. It was a joyous time of celebration. It was a very well-attended festival for two reasons. It was an exciting festival to attend, lots of stuff going on and things like that. 
and it was one of three festivals that required the attendance of every Jewish male who lived within a 10-mile radius of Jerusalem. Okay, and so you had to go if you were in the 10-mile range. So during the feast, great throngs came to town. It was a very colorful event. If it were to occur today, we would probably call it the Jerusalem Camping and Recreational Vehicle Convention. Okay? Shelters sprang up in the most unlikely places, on flat rooftops, down dark alleys, even in the courts of the temple, and all of the shelters uh, followed the rabbinical building code. The walls were extra thin so that light came in through them, and the roof had to show enough sky so the stars could be seen, thus reminding the Jews how they wandered in the wilderness and, uh, and of how God had provided for them. So you would come and you would have some sort of homemade structure that you and your family would stay in for a week somewhere in Jerusalem or near Jerusalem, and it would have to have these requirements. And it was a, a reminder that, you know, our people used to live in tents in the desert, you know, kind of thing. The feast was a wonderful and festive time. People dressed in their Sabbath best for the week. They called it the season of our gladness. But there's more to the feast, uh, you know, that we're talking about here. There was a specific celebration that happened within that feast where Jesus just gloriously reveals himself, but I'm going to leave that for Pastor Robbie. But the point here is for us to understand you know, this morning that uh, Jerusalem and the surrounding area would have been incredibly crowded. There would have been a boatload of families and peoples in Jerusalem at this time. And that helps us to understand exactly what these brothers are saying to him. Okay? So the last thing, as far as background is concerned, is I think I ought to give you a definition of what is meant by worldly fame. Okay? Verse 3 says, So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And so what we're talking about here when we're talking about worldly fame is basically putting yourself where the most people are in order to wow them with your tricks or your abilities so that they will follow you. That's what we're talking about here when we talk about worldly fame. They said, Jesus, everybody's in Jerusalem for the feast. Go. That's where the crowd is. Go to the crowd, perform a few magic tricks, you know, do your miracle thing you do, and, and do that in such a way that they were going to, you, you know, you can kind of get the group back together again, because it sounds like you had a, quite a few people just a few months ago. Okay, and so the, the crowd was enamored with Jesus' miracles, they were ready to make him king, and then of course, as Robbie pointed out, by the end of that, Jesus said a few hard things, and they had nothing to do with him again. So now we're come to the conversation with his brothers. Matthew 13, 55 gives us a list of Jesus' brothers. It says James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, okay? Best argument, of course, is these are the, you know, continued family of Mary and Joseph before Joseph probably died at some point in this, but uh, this is the continued family of Mary and Joseph. There's other people out there that think that Mary might have had kids, and Joseph might have had kids, and they're just kind of a blended family or something like that. It's all bunk. I think it's Mary and Joseph's kids. And, uh, and so we know they had, that Jesus had at least one sister and had brothers. And in this conversation here, though, Jesus' brothers reveal the folly of connecting Jesus to worldly fame. And this is truly tragic. Okay? And so the second point is the folly of connecting Jesus to worldly fame. How was 
what they proposed, absolute foolishness. Well, here's point number one. The brothers take the same approach that the sign seekers took. Okay, the brothers are taking the same approach that the sign seekers took. If you remember a few weeks back, if you're here with us for the first time, you won't remember this, but if you remember a few weeks back, we were talking about how Jesus kept his distance from John chapter 2 for those who were seeking him only because of the signs. And then the crowd gets a little bit worse in a sense that during the feeding of the 5,000, the crowd comes and says, give us bread. You know, so in other words, they're not even wowed by the miracle. They just want the stuff of the miracle. And so in both of those situations, these are not places humans want to find themselves in determining who Jesus is. Oh, he just works miracles, so I'm going to follow him. Or he just gives us stuff, so I'm going to follow him or something like that. That is using Jesus, and Jesus is not to be used. And so the, the brothers take this same kind of approach, and it's kind of in a way... Same song, second verse is what we're talking about here. Verse 3 says that his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. Now, there's no mention of the brothers in chapter 6, so they probably either heard about these things or might have been there, but it doesn't say. But either way, they were telling Jesus, you need to go on tour. You need to get out there, get yourself out there, promote yourself. This is the only way that you're going to have this following, and it might have even been, been connected to their concept of the Messiah, you know, because the Messiah was supposed to come in and defeat the Romans. If anybody knew that the Romans were really hard to defeat, the Jewish people would be those kinds of people. They're treated poorly by soldiers all the time, and they're just everywhere. And so, you need to get a crowd if you're going to come and, and, and whoop up on the Romans here. And yet, verse, uh, uh, two verses later, after they say, we need to get you on the road, you need to be out in public, show yourself to the world, two verses later it says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now, that is a tragic statement, but it was a beautiful, and what I mean by beautiful is probably more towards the lines of perfect, but it was a perfect exposing of the folly of these brothers. In chapter 6, you have thousands of people who come for the miracle, but when they hear hard sayings, they leave because they did not believe what Jesus said about himself, nor did they believe what the miracle said about Jesus. They weren't concerned that Jesus all of a sudden created bread out of nothing. That has a lot to do with the fact that he is God. They didn't get that message. They just got the message that, oh, my tummy's full. And now you have these brothers kind of committing the same folly. Do some miracles to draw a following, but we really don't believe in you either. And that's a very, very dangerous position to be in. And so the brothers, the second thing is the brothers' recommendation was more than misguided. It was wicked. Now, how was their recommendation wicked? Two things. Letter number A is the brothers presume to know the will of God. The brothers tell Jesus, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. This is not humble questioning on the part of the brothers, is it? 
They're not saying, you know, well, Jesus, what do you think about going down to the feast? Do you think that would be something that would be advantageous to your ministry? I mean, what do you think? I mean, yes, you could perform some miracles, and I think that would really help you. But, but what do you think, Jesus? This is not humble questioning that's happening here. This is arrogant presumption. And Jesus had to basically correct them. They said, show yourself to the world. And Jesus said, not now. Not now. It is not my time. But the second thing is, letter number B, the brothers suggest a really wicked solution. If the brothers truly knew what the world is, they would not have suggested that Jesus show himself to it. If you think about that, if they say, show yourself to the world, they do not know who the world is. Throughout the book of John, we see exactly what the world is. John 1 verse 10, it says, Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. John 3, 19, it says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John 15, verses 18 19 says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are of the world, not of the world, excuse me, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In John 18, 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my, friend, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. And so, telling Jesus to show himself to the world was telling him to show himself to the one thing that would constantly reject him. As D.A. Carson puts it, he says, The world is precisely that which cannot receive him without ceasing to be the world. There would have to be some sort of drastic change in the world in order for the world to rightly receive, the, receive Jesus. Otherwise, Jesus goes down to Jerusalem. Let's say he follows his brother's advice and he goes down to Jerusalem, uh, goes up to Jerusalem, excuse me, is what it says because geographically it's up, but map-wise, it's south. But anyway, he goes up to Jerusalem, and he performs all these great miracles, and all these people are wowed and amazed, but they will not believe in him. So the third point is, Jesus gives us the reason for their folly. His answer to why they propose such foolish wickedness is that they are of the world. He starts it by saying, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Jesus would not go to the feast at that moment and in that way because it wasn't his time. What he meant by this was it wasn't in God's perfect timing to go at that point. So for instance, in John 4, 34, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, Jesus says, I will not do anything outside of God's perfect will for my life. It's my food, it's my, you know, it's my, my sustenance that I do the Father's will. And then Jesus goes on to say in John 6, 38, he says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus was resolute when it came to doing the Father's will rather than his own, even at the end 
when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane prior to being arrested, tortured, crucified, all of those horrible and terrible things, he prays, my father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So from the beginning till the end of his ministry, Jesus followed the Father's will perfectly. So even if he were, let's say, in this moment in discussion with the brothers and they said, go down to Jerusalem, and he says, not right now, it's not my time, it could be your time, and then if 10 seconds happened and he received some sort of word from the Father to go, he'd say, okay, let's go. And they would think he's crazy, but that would be what would happen. But what did Jesus mean by telling the brothers, your time is always here? Well, we've already established that his brothers at this point did not believe in him. And if they did not believe in him, basically this meant they did not belong to him. And if they did not belong to him, then they were not bound by the same mandate that he was. It was always their time because they had no knowledge of God's time clock. It was always their time because it was clear they were not listening to him, nor did they understand who he was. They were unbelievers. And so Jesus buttons up the reasoning here by saying in verses 7 and 8, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to that, excuse me, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. And so the brothers could move freely about the world because the world would never put a target on them. The world loves its own. In fact, when Jesus said the world cannot hate you, in the Greek that word cannot means basically absolutely incapable of doing something. And so when it said the world cannot hate you, it means the world loves you. The world cannot hate you because they belong to the world. Which brings us to point number four. Everything was confirmed in Jesus going to the feast. Jesus has said all of these things. He tells the brothers they are not of the world. He says that he is not going down to the feast. He says all of these things. And then what happens next in the next few verses in 9 on to verse 13, he basically, everything that he just said is confirmed. And it's kind of like, well, there you go. So in verses 9 and 10, it says, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And so the first question is, was Jesus dishonest in saying, I'm not going up to the feast and then going to the feast? And the answer is yes. I'm just going to see if I got a reaction out of you. No, the answer is no. The answer is no. I'm kind of rambling through this thing, so I just wanted to throw a little speed bump in the middle there. Uh, So no, Jesus is never dishonest. (laughs) Jesus don't lie. But uh, the the, the short answer is no, okay? Now, how do we know this? Well, first of all, there's a little grammar thing here, and I know, I mean, if your eyes aren't glazed over yet, they're about to be, because I said the word grammar, but uh, except for that one person in the back. I love English, but anyway. uh, but, but, But seriously, though, Um, But there is some grammar here. Hupos is the Greek word that's used in this concept, 
and there's a real possibility, because hupos can, can be translated as not yet, okay? So there's a real possibility that Jesus was saying, I am not going to the feast, not yet, okay? King Jimmy gets it well, the King James Version, and it says, I go not up yet unto this feast, okay? Kind of talks like Yoda there, but Jesus is saying, I go not up yet to this feast, But more importantly, let's set the grammar aside, which is a good defense for this, but more importantly, remember Jesus said, my time is not yet come, signifying he would only do what the Father said he would do. We don't know the gap of time between verses 8 and 9, probably not very long. Probably took a while for the brothers to pack and get their families and head that direction, so there might have been a gap of time. But at some point, the, the Father told the Son, from when he said he wasn't going to go to the point that he did go, go. And the overriding rule for Jesus, of course, was, I'm going to do the Father's will. If the Father makes me a maniac in the process of doing his will, I'm still going to do his will. But the beautiful thing is, in going to the feast, Jesus affirms everything about the folly of his brothers and his reasons for their foolishness. So here's point number one, and we're going to land the plane here in just a little bit. Point number one is this, the brothers did not have a clue about the will of God, but presumed to know it. Okay, we've already made that statement, but we're going to see how this happens. This is affirmed in Jesus' journey. Verse 4, he says, for no one works in secret. This is the brothers talking. They say, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Okay, and so they're saying, you know, that, uh, you know, Jesus, if, if your intentions are to show yourself to the world, which that was his intentions. Now, he's going to reveal himself in a way nobody could ever imagine by dying on the cross for sins. But, They say, if you show your intentions to the world, then you've got to never do these things in secret. They presume that Jesus wanted to use the avenue of worldly fame to accomplish his purposes. If this were true, why did Jesus go to the feast in private then? Right? And you could say this about a lot of things Jesus did. It's not just this one thing where he was kind of clandestine or something like that. Why did Jesus speak in parables rather than plainly speak? Why did he retreat to the mountains alone to pray after feeding the 5,000 when they wanted to make him king? Why was he silent during his torture and crucifixion when he was absolutely innocent? Why did he not call down legions of angels while hanging on the cross? Apparently, worldly fame was not the avenue of choice for Jesus to accomplish his purposes. In fact, if he did any of these things, If he didn't do any of these things, if he called down the legions of angels or if he defended himself before, you know, the governor and set himself free or if he spoke plainly and other things like that, if he did these things, then we're doomed, right? We would be dead in our sins and trespasses because the cross would have never happened. If Jesus chose a worldly fame route where he's walking around a theme park and accidentally brushes some young Jewish maid and she goes, ah! And he walked away thinking, yeah, that's what I want. 
then we're doomed. It was not his purposes. That was not the route he wanted to take. But the second point is this, Jesus going to the feast affirms everything he said about the world. Now, we're going to see here from here to the end of John, just increasing hostility to Jesus. But Jesus said in verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. And after verse 10, the brothers are off the storyline. But where they leave off, basically, Jerusalem picks up the slack. Because it says, first of all, in verse 11, the Jews were looking for him. It says the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Now, the Jews here, what we're talking about here, are not all of the Jewish people. But when you see the Jews, usually with a capital J, you're generally talking about the Jewish officials. Pharisees, Sadducees the Sanhedrin. And we know why they were looking for him, because it said earlier in chapter 7, it says they were looking for him because they wanted to kill him. Jesus was probably right about the world if here are the brothers going down and, and all of a sudden, you know, a group of Pharisees kind of walk by and maybe the brothers are with some friends and the friends go, shh. Why? They're looking for your brother. Why? They want to kill him. Oh, the world hates our brother. Kind of what we heard a few weeks back, or a few days back. But also the second thing is the people's conclusion about him. Now here's a question. Have you ever gotten overly upset at someone over something that really didn't matter that much? Oh, come on. You guys are the most self-controlled group I've ever been in front of. Wow, that's... Okay, we'll go, we'll go as shallow as a song. You heard a song on the radio, or you heard it on your, you know, devices. And you're like, this amazing song. I can't wait to share this with my family, or my, you know, friends, or whatever. And you go to this person that you know they're going to love this song. And you play this song, and you're like, you know, you're jamming out to it and everything, and they're just kind of looking at you, okay. And then, and then at the end of the song, what'd you think? And, you, and they go, eh. What? That's the greatest song ever. What's, yeah, you're the problem kind of thing, right? Anyone ever done that? I see a couple of husbands and wives looking at each other. Okay. But yeah, you can get, you can get, that's the greatest burger, you know, come with this burger place, we're going to go here on the next date night, and they don't like it, you know, or something like that, or it's, you know, ho-hum or something like that. You know, there's a certain likes and things that we have, you know, and uh, flavors and sounds and other things like that. I like songs, and I generally listen to drum parts, you know, and that sort of thing, you know, go figure. And, and, and so, uh, you know, we just have certain things, and, and we just get all worked up because this person that we thought would really understand is nowhere near appreciating the masterpiece that we bring before them. But it's just a song. It's probably not, probably not. I'll say probably because it could be a 
a song that really points to Christ and may, you know, hopefully they love the lyrics but don't like the tune or something like that, but, but it's probably not an act of wickedness to consider a song you love to be so-so. It's probably not. It's probably not an act of wickedness. It's just a matter of tastes. And they have a right to be wrong, correct? <laughs> but folks, it is, it is absolutely wicked to get Jesus wrong. It is absolutely wicked to get Jesus wrong. And the, and the people of Jerusalem do just that in verse 12. It says in verse 12, and there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. And folks, in the reality of things, saying Jesus is a good man is falling infinitely short of who Jesus is. So that's wicked. And then to say he is leading the people astray is an outright lie about who Jesus is. That is certainly wicked. Either way, the people of Jerusalem at that time proved that they are of the world, and as long as they are of the world, they will never understand Jesus. In fact, as Jesus said, they will hate him. And then just the, the final hook on proving that they are of the world and they just don't get it. Verse 13 says, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. If a person understands who Jesus is, they will share who Jesus is. If a person has a right view of who Jesus is, they will tell others about him. possibly with more enthusiasm than the latest song that tickles the ears. So I guess the big challenge, I I really don't have a landing of the playing wrap-up type of thing here, but I guess the big challenge to the congregation this morning is statistically this is a possibility. Someone in here may not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They may be in this category of, he's a good man, You know, they may be in the category of, I think he's a devil. But for both reasons, you need to repent. For both reasons, you need to repent. You need to confess whatever perception of Jesus, wrong perception of Jesus you have as sin, and you need to ask the Lord to be your Lord and Savior. You need to see Him for who He is, King of kings, Lord and lords, Son of God, pure, holy, righteous, not good, perfect, not deceptive, leading you always on right paths, Jesus. So I just want to challenge you this morning, speak to someone who knows who Jesus is, and say, I want to know this Jesus that this pastor's talking about this morning, and place your lives in his, place your life in his hands. Put your trust in him. Confess your sin to him. See him as the Lord and Savior, because he is. And I guess for those of us who do know him as Lord and 
Savior. Persevere would be a good thing here with those who don't. You know, for the brother, for, that, that is just such a tragic statement for, for these brothers to say, you know, you need to show yourself to the world, and then two verses later say, they didn't believe in him. You know, what on earth, the insanity of that. But then when you go over to the book of Acts, immediately after the resurrection, it talks about the crowd that's in the room. And guess who's there? James is there. Judas, who we know as Jude, was there. His brothers were there. And guess who wrote the book of James? James, the brother of Jesus. Guess who wrote the book of Jude? Judas, the brother of Jesus. Guess who was the pastor of the first church there in Jerusalem, and, you know, which was infinitely important in the history of the church? James was. And guess who we know almost with as much certainty as we do know the story of Peter was martyred for his belief in Jesus, it was James. So if you have loved ones or co-workers or other people who just don't understand who this Jesus is, don't quit. Don't give up. There's a real possibility God in his mercy and his kindness will one day save them and they will bow the knee to Christ. So let's pray together. Father, I pray that you will just um, bless us this week with thinking on you, thinking on how amazing you are and doing the Father's will perfectly, Lord. We are so grateful for that, not just as a challenge to us to, to as believers in you, to trust in the Father's will and to be obedient to your will and to be patient when we don't know exactly what to do in this moment or anything like that, but Lord... Ultimately, Lord, we are so very grateful that you followed the Father's will perfectly to the cross, which made it possible for us to know the Father's will. And Lord, we will be eternally grateful to you, Lord, as we are about to sing in just a moment about your great love. I pray that we would do that, Lord, that we would bow the knee to you and just rejoice in who you are. I pray for family members and friends that we know that don't know you, that might have a great plan on how to promote Christianity, but don't give a flip about what Christianity actually teaches. I pray that you would just give us patience, help us, Father, to endure with them speaking to them your truth so that they may one day bow the knee to you. I pray for those of us in here that do not know you as Lord and Savior. Lord, may you please save them today. Lord, may you be merciful to them and may you be mighty to save and may you bring them to conviction over their sin. And may they bow the knee to you, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity we have to just be reminded of these things this morning, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.